we have three readings this morning. And our readings this morning give us two passages that might easily be misunderstood. And one passage which clarifies where we might go wrong in our reading of the other two passages. We've got two readings that are so easy to get wrong. And one reading that makes sure we don't go wrong. There are two readings that seem to suggest there's something we need to do in order to be accepted by God. And one that clarifies that that reading is wrong. So let's begin. Let's begin with Malachi chapter 6. Many of you, I'm sure, recognize the very last verse. It's one of those famous verses, one of those bumper sticker kind of verses. Do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. It's actually a question. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? It's one of those verses that sounds so good when they're read out of context. It sounds so nice. If we just do these things, three things, just three, then we'll meet God's requirements for us. We'll be right with God when we do these things. And isn't it lucky they're also easy to do? Love kindness. Anyone here who doesn't love kindness? You see someone being kind to someone and your blood runs cold? (laughs) You see a Boy Scout helping a little old lady across the street and you just, that little brat. (laughs) Everybody likes kindness. Duh. Anyone here who doesn't walk humbly with God? Anyone? I mean, what could be easier than that? God's so great. Of course, if we're going to walk with God, we have to do so humbly. And doing justice. Anybody here not like justice? Verse is well known, but we forget the verses before it. It sounds so nice until we remember what came before. The prophet Micah is preaching and writing at the same time as the prophet Isaiah, roughly the same time. And he's writing about the Assyrians who have not yet destroyed Israel, but they're humiliating Israel. And people are crying out, what must we do? God tells them through Micah, just as he does through Isaiah, that there will be a remnant to survive, that he will save them as he has in the past. And what does God do? He does what he usually does. He recites what he's done for the people in the past. He recites the victories he's won for the people in the past. He reminds them of bringing them out of Egypt, of delivering them from the possible curses of Balak and so on. Then there's a hint of sarcasm as the people respond with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams with 10,000 rivers of oil I don't think that's a serious request to come forth with 10,000 rivers of oil shall I give my firstborn for my transgression Shall I sacrifice the fruit of my body? Shall I sacrifice my own child for the sin of my soul? And the prophet responds to this. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Do justice, love kindly, and walk humbly with your God. It sounds so simple until we start to work through it. 
do justice. How exactly do we do that? And that's a serious question and a hard question. Some of that difficulty is indicated by what happens when we put other words in front of the word justice because we start talking about different things. If one person is talking about social justice and one person is talking about criminal justice, they're talking about two different things. Someone's talking about social justice, another person's talking about economic justice, they're talking about two different things. And in fact, there's an awful lot of tension between these things that we subdivide justice into and we try to put them in justice in its own little category, we find there's conflict and at least tension. We find it hard to do justice even to the concept of justice. We want to chop it up so we can apply it to only certain cases and then we lose track of what's going on around us. And everyone says they love kindness. But then you go to the homeowners association meeting or the department meeting at work. Or even, I have to say, some vestry meetings I've been in not involving the current vestry. Not involving this vestry, but I've, I've, I've got stories. Walk humbly with God. What might that even mean when we contemplate that? What's Micah saying here? In the face of extravagant offerings suggested, I, I suggest with a bit of sarcasm, Micah gives a simple sounding requirement from God that despite how nice it sounds and how simple it sounds, we can't live up to. We can't even really understand. Because as always, the prophets, prophets point us to our need of a savior. We need a savior, someone who does perfect justice, who exhibits kindness on a level we can't imagine, who walks with God humbly all the way to a cross. Jesus, who did what we could never do. If we had to do justice, to love kindness and walk humbly with God, just as Jesus did, in order to meet God's requirements, we would never be able to do so. Instead, we'd be led into spiritual competition with each other, resulting in pride and pretension. There's a similar tendency when we read the passage appointed for today in the Gospels. Our reading from the Gospels of Matthew today give us the Beatitudes, that famous list of people who are blessed. And again, many take this as a list of things that followers of Christ need to be in order to be blessed by God. I've heard sermons where the preacher gets up and says, these should be your attitudes. Get it? There's even a little book, I see it every once in a while in the, th in the thrift stores, it says, the B in scare quote, attitudes. And it's about how you need to develop these attitudes in your life. I'm certainly not preaching against developing these attitudes in your life, don't get me wrong. But some will say, we'll read these beautiful verses and conclude that you must become poor in spirit in order to be blessed. Or you must become mournful about this, that, or the other thing to be blessed. In order to be blessed and satisfied, you must hunger and thirst for righteousness. Are you hungry enough? Are you thirsty enough? And that question will preach, but it's preaching poison. It's not preaching the grace of God. You must be pure in heart to be blessed and see God. Well, then count me out. Nothing is further from the truth of God's grace. 
If we come to scripture looking for things to do, to be accepted by God, we'll come up short. Paul writes, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That phrase coming short in Greek means missing the mark in an archery contest. You're sitting there aiming at the target, but you miss the bullseye. You fall short, you come short of the mark. Even when you're trying, you're in a contest trying to hit the bullseye. And all of us still fall short. This is the message of the gospel. We don't do work to be accepted by God because God's already accepted us in Christ Jesus. Of course, there's a process that theologians call sanctification of trying to become more holy in response to God's gifts. But that process doesn't begin with our trying to get Jesus' attention by what we're doing, but by recognizing that he's already accepted us. I'm not saying that these two lists, the one from Micah or the one from the Attitude, aren't targets to aim at. Provide a list of character traits that we could aspire to. But we will fall short, and that's why we need the grace of God. The Beatitudes are a word of blessing to us. Christ comes to us not because we work up our hunger for righteousness, but he comes to us in our brokenness when we are hungry for righteousness, in our mournfulness, in our desire for peace. Jesus comes to us in our brokenness, not in our wholeness. So although we might have been tempted to follow the wrong path on those two verses, to those two passages. Fortunately, our reading from 1 Corinthians keeps us straight. Paul's doing two things in this passage. As he often does, he's making two arguments at the same time. And you've got to try to kind of tease out which argument he's hitting where. The common thread is foolishness. And he's going to make two arguments about foolishness. The first is that he presents the foolishness of the cross. I mentioned lately and, uh, and recently about how quickly the cross, the symbol of humiliation, the symbol of imperial oppression, is completely taken and transformed and subverted into an image of God's love. A complete cultural revolution in only a few centuries for the symbol of horror to become widespread and recognized as a symbol of love. Well, here... Paul addresses the concerns of both the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews, he says, look for a sign, wondrous works, miracles. The Greeks look for wisdom. But really, I think Paul is saying here, they're both looking for the same thing, which is flash and flare and a good show. Signs and wonders and miracles. That's a good show. Wisdom, by the time Paul is writing probably refers to sophists and sophistry. These are, these are philosophers who study philosophy not to find truth, but to find clever ways to make arguments. And one is rewarded for the cleverness of their rhetoric rather than for whether they are actually arguing for something true or false. Now, as an apostle, Paul could have performed signs and miracles and wondrous works. And in fact, he did several times. And as a philosopher, he could have woven exquisite beautiful arguments to prove whatever he wanted to. But instead, he preached Christ crucified. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, 
but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So, he spent some time talking about the foolishness of the cross. But a second argument is more interesting to me this morning in context with our other passages. Paul turns from the cross as the expression of God's wisdom and, foolish, and, and love and the foolishness of the cross, actually expressing God's wisdom and love. And he turns to those chosen to follow the cross of Christ. For consider your calling, brothers. Consider your calling, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast. Consider your calling. God chose the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If you think about that, that's not the way the rest of the world works. It's not even the way the church works. You may happen to know that right now we have a search committee looking for a rector. And I can just imagine them getting around a table in the conference room. And um, John Harris, who chairs that committee, says, um, I asked you to think about some characteristics we were looking for in our next rector. What have you come up with? And Pete says, well, I think we need somebody who's really foolish. And John says, foolish. Somebody write that down. (laughs) Anybody else come up with anything? And Gail says, I think weakness. Somebody who's, you know, pretty weak. I think that'd make a good good rector. And John says, I see where this is going. This is good stuff, people. He says, you know, the more I think about it, we've got got one of these applicants. I, I looked through the letter of recommendations and every one of them said they despise the guy. I think maybe that's somebody move up to the top of the list. I'm not supposed to interfere with the search committee, but I don't think anybody's going to call the bishop if I say, please don't do that search committee. That's, let God choose a foolish person if he's going to send us a foolish person. Don't let's not us pick one on purpose. That's who God chooses. And not everybody God chooses fits into that category, Paul says. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So that kind of implies that maybe some were wise and powerful and of noble birth. But Paul says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul goes on and says, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christ Jesus, Paul says, becomes our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption. I can try to work up my own righteousness, but I'd much rather have Jesus become mine I have a commitment to sanctification to become more and more like Jesus. But I'm glad I don't have to become more like Jesus before Jesus becomes like me. Now I see why I'm not left out when when Jesus said the pure in heart can see God. Because my heart can be purified by the forgiveness of God 
offered to me in Christ Jesus. So that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Not that we boast in ourselves and how we do justice and love kindness and walk humbly and are poor in spirit. Not to boast of ourselves, but to boast in Christ who is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.